Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Ken Weitzma. Ken is a leader, innovator, and social entrepreneur. His work takes him around the world as a frequent international speaker on justice, theology, and leadership. Ken is the founder of the Justice Conference, which has reached over 30,000 people across seven countries with a message on a theology of justice and God's call to give our lives away. He's also the lead pastor of Global Ministries at Antioch Church and is president of Kilns College, where he teaches courses on philosophy and justice. He's the author of a number of books, including most recently, The Myth of Equality, Uncovering the Roots of Injustice and Privilege. It's a great book and we had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Ken Weitzman. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, I feel like I know you already and we don't really know each other. It's the first time we ever met. Uh, well, if we know each other, you should be buying dinner. So Exactly. I, well, yeah. You can, I mean, you can pay for it either way. Exactly. I don't want to be fresh. but well, No, you do. I mean, we exchanged several texts. But we went right sure. from email to text relationship and I feel like... It's pretty quick. I had a sense for like who you, you come across... <laughs> Very genuine over text messages. Although no emojis. Do you use emojis? I do. I do. But uh, My wife uses emojis. She can do a whole paragraph of emojis. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. I can only do one. Like it's the whatever the right smiley face is at the end of a sentence. But that's about all I got. I just learned the poop emoji was not chocolate ice cream. I was like, oh, do you want chocolate ice cream? No. Like, I don't think I could go to the poop emoji. Yeah, man. That's, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's too much. Dancers, poop emojis, people. Dancers, use. glasses, wine, sunshines. Yeah. yeah, I sent you a couple emojis today. Did, did you? I was really trying to bring out my best texting <laughs> game. My wife would find it really funny. Enough. Yeah, she sent this guy some. She might get jealous. Like, hey, I used a couple emojis. Okay. Like, she's rubbing off on you, man. That's yeah, a good thing. Yeah, no, she's a great texter and a great woman. She's actually a healthcare professional. Nice. For comprehensive urologic little specialist in Langhorne, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Get the plug in there. Jameson mm, Jaffe's. Not practice. everybody can say that. Yeah, St. Mary's Good Catholic Hospital. So you wrote a book, The Myth of Equality, Under Uncovering the Roots of Injustice and Privilege, which really is you you were asked, commissioned kind of by yeah. University Press to write a book about racism. Do you feel like given the cur- current political mood and stuff, you're like, geez, I missed my moment. <laughs> Like, it was the wrong time to write a book about race. No, in some ways, it's the right time, right? Um, that, that, I, that was ironic. It was, it was, it was, you were being funny. Um, I should have played Aladdin. <laughs> there should be an Aladdin more set emoji. Like, yeah, so I, I mean, the story of how I was asked to do that, I, I, I've been teaching, cl- I teach classes on justice at a college called Kilns College, which is a Christian grad school. Uh, and you now is that the Potter Kilns, like Kiln the Potter Potter? C.S. Lewis Kilns. Kilns. So kind of named after what his house used to be called, the Kilns. And uh, but, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those fun Lewis facts and inklings. But uh, yeah, so a subject, and then talking about getting into justice sooner or later, you got to get into race. And and I over time I had grown into trying to talk about privilege because that's part of my own story of beginning to understand just the world in, in which I'm I'm living, right? And and so I uh, went to a justice conference probably about two years ago in Chicago and got a, approached by University Press to do this and really was like, wow, that's a that's that's a career killer. <laughs> that's uh so I asked everyone. My wife was the first one to say that Yeah, because you you tell a story in the book yeah. about how basically 
you were invited to speak at a religious college on a justice theme. They wanted to bring you in. You're a justice guy. You've actually been the founder of the Justice Conference. Not a Justice Conference. It's got the definite article. The Justice Conference. The Justice Conference. You're this guy. And, and you say, well, okay, I'd like to talk about white privilege. And the chaplain says, oh. It's worse the president than, says, we can't use it's, that word. No, <laughs> it's, it's, wor- it's worse than that. The chaplain was 30 years old, a guy that had heard Cornell West speak and, and actually was moved by it and saying, I want to figure out how to deal with, with white privilege in this. So he, he had actually struck up a phone conversation with me about this topic and then says, can you come talk at the college? And so naturally I'm like, well, hey, let's do that. Let's bring another person in, an African-American friend of mine, so that we can we can bounce this out. And we'll talk about the subject. He goes, no, 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 I want you to come, but you can't talk about Oh, right, you said you can't talk about white privilege. Yeah, because right. the, the college president, the new college president, had come specifically to the chaplain and forbade that that phrase would ever be used from the, the college stage, chapel stage. You wanted to say what colleges? You can name names. Oh, man. It's in Chicago. Let's put it that way. Um, oh, boy. Well, okay. I could, there's, there's a couple a, guesses. There's a, there's there's a, there's a, there's a, and my guess is it begins with a consonant, and we'll leave it there. But so the uh, there's a lot of Christian colleges in the greater Chicago area. I, I guarantee that that consonant but so, could either. Could so, be, you, somebody's going to go back and look at my speaking history or something. But so I, I bet you that consonant, either college. If you flipped it over, it would be one or the other. It's one consonant that could be flipped upside down. Making me try to visualize it now. Um, I don't know. That there's, I, there's a one letter with a K <laughs> that could be. But so, so the crazy thing for me as an educator, so I, I, I love learning in history if you kept me open. It's all history. I just love history. And I think history allows us to, to grow into better people, wise people, mature people. And so my whole takeaway from that was if we can't have difficult conversations from the stage, the the learning stage at a Christian college in academia, where in the world are Christians going to ever actually be able to grapple with these difficult conversations? And white privilege is a difficult conversation. So it's crazy. Yeah. And it's interesting because you talk about towards the end of the book, you talk about Downton Abbey and how we kind of aristocracy. Yeah. (laughs) We like the privilege. I mean, if there was the income inequality that we have right now in most other countries, there'd be a revolution and people just get, but we but people kind of like, Oh, it's, it's like, uh, uh, John Oliver talks about how, like we have all these segments. Uh, what do you do if you win the lottery? Yeah. And he's like, you, it'd be better if you say what to do, what to say on your second date with Beyonce or what to do if you're scoring a touchdown, about to score a touchdown and a shock bites your foot at football at the Super Bowl. I mean, it's not, but we, we have this sort of grandiose, but do you think like, it's interesting because if you say the word privilege, if you say you're you you're successful or you're influential, people take that as a compliment. But if you say you're privileged, whoa, 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 whoa I'm not whoa. privileged. I'm influential. I've, I've worked hard <laughs> well, for everything I've got. I'm successful, yeah. but I'm yeah. And so people really, I mean, maybe it's good to just get that out of the way at the beginning of a podcast like this. But privilege is is simply, in some ways, best defined. Uh, if I were to ask the question, uh, if you got pulled over at two in the morning in Mississippi, would you rather be white or a person of color? And and everyone, I think, that has a pulse knows, well, I'd rather be white if I got pulled over on a rural road in Mississippi at two in the morning. That's That enough is to say there's such a thing as white privilege. It doesn't mean you're not working hard. It doesn't mean that you grew up in the foster system or with a single parent or that you were poor as well. It, it doesn't mean that all those things about your story are somehow untrue. It simply means by virtue of the color of your skin, you have an easier path to a lot of the basic human things, human rights, civil rights in America than if you were a person of color. And uh, and I do think 
it gets complicated. So people ask me like, how did you, how did you, how did you figure out how to talk about privilege or the psychology of it? And, and I haven't said this in any other interview, but I just, wait, wait, let me get my Twitter feed. Exclusive. It's an exclusive. exclusive. I introspected. I introspected. I, I, I mean, we do have this itch towards aristocracy. I watched, we, we watched movies all grown up where the hero is the white quarterback or it's a, it's a romantic comedy with a white guy and, and a white girl. And there's an African-American funny guy. That's the best friend of the guy or and the girl has an Asian friend or, I mean, there's this script and, and you picture yourself. That's what movies do. They make you want to be whoever the star is in the middle of it. And we do the same thing with Downton Abbey. Like nobody goes, I want to be the servant downstairs. We look at the family and go, Oh, if I was the benefactor, you know, and I, and would, a, I would, yeah, I'd be a good one. I'd, you know, which is tantamount to saying if I used to own slaves, I would have been a, a gracious one, you know, I, it, but we somehow have this strange thing of, I want to end up on the top of the heap where everybody else is working and affording me a life of leisure where I'm the hero in the story. And so I think this American dream is, is links up with this itch toward aristocracy, which is very different than the ethics of Jesus. Take up your cross daily and follow me. You will have trouble in this world because I had trouble. And somehow in that suffering, that voluntary suffering, we're going to do justice by serving the most vulnerable or, or those in the margins or the oppressed. So we've lined up the whole rails of how life is supposed to go in the U.S. in a very non-Jesus way. Yeah, because you talk about in the book how, like, we, the, the irony of this nation is that, like, we're founded on an anti aristocratic ethic, but yet we kind of we create new aristocracies. And then we create mythical narratives of I earned it and stuff like that. So it doesn't sound aristocratic. Yeah. I mean, if we really get in the weeds of it, it's fa I, I find this stuff fascinating, but. We we pushed off the aristocracy and the landed gentry of the British. You know that was the the whole U.S. Revolution thing. Is is we don't want to be that, but yet I think there's this strange um, mythology or, or kind of mystic quality to the British and the colonial whatever. And I think people grow up with that, saying, "I would love if I was the princess." I love if I was the prince and, and we're borrowing all those same categories again. And then you bring it back to this whole American ethic of self-reliance, the Protestant work ethic, that self-determination, you can be whatever you want to be. And so to the degree that we actualize some of that, we feel like it's ours. It's mine. I, I earned it. And then we're going to protect it. If we don't, there's this strange internalized kind of oppression that I've failed at the categories by which I'm, I should be evaluating myself. I'm a failure. So if I don't make it rich, if I don't, if I'm not dashing, if I'm not the prince or the princess, uh, if I, if I don't have a retirement, if I can't ride into the sunset, then even if, especially if, if you're white, it's the problem with white privilege is it counts for you and against you. Um, it makes life easier, but somehow if you end up failing in life, it makes you feel doubly the failure. And so one of the big things we're seeing is that the fastest declining life expectancy is uneducated middle-aged white people with opioid, uh, opioid epidemics and alcohol dependency, suicide, things like that, because those categories of privilege really do create, create problems too. This is uh, St. Paul's great insight, right? The law increases the trespass. If you have the success law that you have, you know, you're just, you know, those who live by the sword, those who live by the law, die by the law. 
This is, I sound, that's too radically Lutheran, but. That sounds radically Lutheran. <laughs> so, okay. At the end of, so this is, I have two copies of your book, InterVarsity sent me two because they love you so much. So you say, it says about the author, and it's a great picture of you, by the way, black and white. Thank you. My, my, my wife, I mean, my that wife you, picked, picked that picture right. out. Yeah. She's, she's got taste. It says that you're known for a transparent, easy style. I get that. And that you're a persuasive communicator. Um, or maybe it said somewhere else on one of these things. So you're, or you're a gifted um, communicator. And somewhere else it said that you had an ability to persuade. So you said something that astounded me in the beginning of the book that I want to challenge you on. This is the thing that I found right. most right. objectionable in the entire book. Are you ready? I'm ready. Go you ready? I'm going to give it to you. You talk about Dinesh D'Souza's documentary, America, yeah. Imagine the World Without Her. And then you say um, that I certainly find some of his language compelling. I've never found anything compelling about Dinesh D'Souza. Not one thing. <laughs> You know you're reading out of the advanced reader copy. That's not. Oh, did you final. cut that out? I think I changed that. Oh, okay, good. Well, I there think, you go. I think okay. I was. I think I was trying to, because uh, I was picking on Dinesh D'Souza and and the people that would be caught up by his arguments, right? And so I was trying to, I was trying to set it up and say, look, I, yeah, I don't even. I think the problem with Dinesh D'Souza is he came in as an immigrant from the outside and joined what was the idealized image of the best America. He's from India. If, if Dinesh D'Souza had grown up on the reservation as a Native American, I think he'd, he'd have a totally different he'd worldview. He'd have been the same person. He's just the first, he'd have been the guy <laughs> that everybody in the tribe hated. He would, any place you put that guy, that guy would have been that guy. It was, I, I, went, I was at a th- thing where he was giving this apologetics talk or something. And he was talking about Christopher Hitchens, who was my favorite kind of member of the New Atheist. He's like, and Chris, you feel bad because he's a sick guy. And, you know, I felt bad because we were kind of friends and he wears a trench coat, looks like a child monster. And you, it's like a, a dog. You don't want to kick it. You do want to kick it, but you know, you don't because you say it could bite. I'm like, well, so you like it. And then he starts talking about, we need to, Christians need to be more on the attack. And I said, this is a couple of years ago. I said, you know, given like the, um, it was Kathy Gifford, the congresswoman from Colorado that was shot and all these other things. You know, you mentioned Augustine. And do you think that like rhetorically, the way to persuade is with martial men. He's like, yes, we need more martial men. I was like, wow, you just doubled down. That's not what I expected. He could be Trump's new speechwriter. Well, he did. He just came out with a new documentary. So I, I first came across him as a guy that wrote a, a scholarly book, What's So Great About Christianity, and thought, you know, here's a, you know, this, this is a subcategory of a whole thing that you grow up, I think when I became a Christian, I thought all Christians were just great. And most of them had been Christians longer than me. And I thought, oh, man. And you were raised, your dad was a, you're you're a child of immigrants. My my dad was an immigrant when he was eight years old from Netherlands. Yeah. Yeah. Was born 44. Yeah. 50% Dutch. Protestant. What is your it's mother? The, it's the work ethic. My mom doesn't know what she is. So if I took the the Ancestry.com, I think. that's, that would change your life. Oh my gosh! I found out I was X, and now I'm gonna, <laughs> my uh, my uh, family were Slavic, so now uh, my circulation is bad. I'm eating borscht. Like uh, there you it go. Might change my diet. So, so your but your dad had a conversion experience through the Billy Graham. Crusade? Back in the, yeah, back in the sixties. Yeah, I think he was I don't know seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. Uh, went hey. to one of the big Billy Graham crusades and and came forward. And so I I grew up around the evangelical world. What kind of church? You talk. 
I think when I was in Maine, it was a scary Baptist church, you know, the kind where the pastor stops and stares at kids. I think it was a very scary one. I think when we moved to North. <laughs> he stopped and st- like, in the, like, as you're walking, kids are swaying, he stops. I, all and- I remember is it fit, it, it's scary. So like it, in all those movies with the funky Baptist church. Stephen King. Bring in the clouds. <laughs> so I think, I think that was a... Uh, pretty harsh church in Northern Virginia. It was more of that just general community church or Bible church or, or whatever. Um, and that's, you know, I was a big youth group. So went to that until I got a driver's license and, you know, the two, I think I told you this when you were setting up the mics, but yeah, the first time I was subtle pre-interview set up subtle, you were trying to get info on me. Yeah. The first time I ever stole anything was on a, one of those two week missions trips to Africa. I was, I was going around the, the markets with this other guy and we would distract these, these poor women that were selling these little stone carvings. And then, you know, one of us would steal it. And so I, I look back and I'm like, what kind of person was I? We, we, you know, before I got my driver's license, we'd go to some of the youth group things and they'd have an evangelism team. So we'd grab a bunch of tracks and say, we're going to go evangelize at the mall. We get dropped off at the mall and drop 200 stacks in somebody's toolbox that was doing construction on a new thing. And then we just hang out at the mall, you know, like that was, that's your, that's your American idiot. You're like a young St. Augustine. Augustine talks about the confessions. We ran around stealing fruit. I didn't even want to do that. I just want to fit in with my friends. Like, yeah, I mean, I'll take that a young St. Augustine. I don't want to be the old St. Augustine. So, So you, so you get saved Age 22. What were you saved from? From uh, the fraternity. Uh, Sex, drugs, rock and roll? uh, Rock and roll. And I'm only going to admit to rock and roll. Okay. What what were you listening to? (laughs) The Grateful Dead. Dude, so you were smoking weed. (laughs) Do you listen to Fish now? No, I listened to it then. That's when Fish was big. Fish was fish was around when the dead was still around, and then yeah, I mean, figure your age. I mean, like do you, both. So you this know, is dead, so I was fish. A, well, yeah, they were the, in Smashing Pumpkins, Gish, you know, and that was the big uh, Billy Corgan so, is he's on Howard Stern now and again. He's the best. I mean, he's like <laughs> he's a Jedi. I mean, I really like. We were listening to Smashing Pumpkins before they were big, you know, and so this is ninety one. And uh, so I was like, I feel like there are not a lot of people I would be intimidated to interview. He's I would intense. be totally intimidated because he's so intelligent. He's a driven. He was a driven guy. He, he was, like bailed he his dad force. out of jail. Like he was an addict and it was like <laughs> terrible to say. And Stern said, well, why'd you, he said, that was the master Jesus would tell us to do. Really? Yeah. I mean, Corrigan is crazy. Yeah. I mean, I he, know that. and he's like his insights on music. I just think Corrigan's like a Jedi. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught and frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe. Would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. 
Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, and Josh Redder. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. So, all right. So that's the redemptive Jesus figure it's a in your lot, life. It's Billy Corrigan. You have, G- you have Billy was, Corrigan. Somehow he must have been a part of it. I just didn't know it. Uh, yeah, no, I, I gave up a really good music scene when I became a Christian. You know, audio adrenaline and, weed. and all that. We're smoking weed. <laughs> Weed's our drug of choice. Different. Back, what, what college back in is the, this? Back in the fraternity. It was Clemson, which nobody knew about until oh, the last Clemson, two sure. years. Yeah. No, I knew about Clemson. So, yeah, that's in the that's in the book, too. But, yeah, so I, I was and in... you actually narrate North. this conversation you had. Was that Clemson with a pastor yeah, yeah. who was basically like... And this is a pastor you kind of thought was a cool guy because he's like a smart pastor and he's not scary. He's not looking at children like in Maine. And he actually says to you like, <laughs> so you're like, he knows you like history and you're talking about history. And he's like, well, you know, the South, didn't, it's not always about slavery. It's just about states' rights. <laughs> Which is crazy because when I saw the thing this last week in Charlottesville, so you got the 20-something kids. What, from, something happened in Charlottesville? It, something happened, yeah. But so those, I but heard those, some nice, decent people got together. And just... <laughs> just said, hey, Robert E. Lee. It just said, hey, we got some freedom of speech things we want to talk about. But it doesn't affect anybody else. <laughs> I mean, what's next? It's funny because my buddy Bill... We've and I, got torches, but we're not really sending a message here. My yeah. buddy Bill and I do this podcast, and it's a, like we do like just whatever we want to talk about. And then we... We talk, he wanted to talk about this article in The Atlantic that, that was focusing on the New Orleans mayor's speech. I was like, yeah, I'm totally for taking them up. It's like, how do we... All right, I'll try to play devil's advocate about it. It's like, well, what if it's the radical left that says this isn't go far enough and George Washington... I mean, like, what would you... Or, or the other good argument is, but what about you don't take them down and you put up lynching monuments next to show that the thing... So I'm thinking, like, the best extremist argument I come up with, what's next? Well, Trump employed it. <laughs> What's that? Just in the last day. And so I thought, God, I thought it was an extreme yeah. left-wing argument. It's kind of a... Yes. So go. so these kids that I saw in the pictures, I mean, I'm 44 now. So I I I met their dads in some ways when I was a, a, in college at Clemson, right? And you be, and I'm a... You, you begin to realize how when you're raised by, by granddad and uncle and this, and your identity is connected to the mythological figures of this war, and you do see those statues, and, and you watch movies, and, and you aspire to have a certain ethic, the code that they talk about, and, and you can see how it, it could be disorienting to some of those guys, but the, where are the mentors? that are coming along and saying, here's the broader story in which that is set. And sometimes you give up things that you might have, you know, the dolls you might have played with when you were a kid and the idea of the Southern kind of the, the, the great society, or you give those things up when you begin to realize they're actually built on very unjust and racist um, thoughts, ideology, uh, religious ideas. Right. And so Seeing that was was crazy in some ways to go, that's still around and it gets passed from generation to generation. And that Trump wants to say, well, that's just that's just that's just the free speech. 
And free speech is meant to talk about ideas of governance. It was it was something we put in so that we could say the monarchy or the or the the politicians can't block out other divergent ideas about how to govern for the best of society. It wasn't meant to say we're going to stand for racist ideologies of the past and completely miss the fact that the 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 legacy and the victims in in some sense of of that injustice are standing around us in our city. They're our neighbor. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just crazy. There was an article in your Republic today that basically said that the left plays into this by showing up that like basically the alt-right wants people to show up and the, the theatrics, like if that no it one draw, shows, that it draws attention to it. Yeah. I mean, is that like, I mean, where is that, do you think there's something to that or, or is there something like the, the, as a Christian, I mean, bearing witness. I mean, is it is showing up the better witness is is sort of not taking it as seriously as it wants to be taken. I mean, how do you process something like this, which appears to be on the rise? I mean, I think it's not. I mean, there are bigger. I mean, redlining and things like this, and the fact that we're changing marijuana prosecution laws, are, they probably have a worse impact on people of color, especially African-Americans. But yet this is a reality uh, that also needs to be dealt with. And what, how, do you, how do you approach that stuff? Yeah, I think, well, I think evil is evil and bad is bad. And, and I do think we have to own the history. And I think that's why in, in the first part of the myth of quality, the, the whole first section is really trying to go into the history that, that people might not know. Right. I'm really digestible. I mean, I was talking with a guy yesterday, a pretty conservative pastor, a good friend. I mean, he and I politically feel, uh, don't agree on a lot. Um, theologically, we have a little more convergence, and we both come out of kind of Reformation traditions. But we we're talking about white privilege, and I'm thinking, I'm going to send him one of my two copies. I'm actually going to send him, you sent him the, the hardback. You sent him the real version. No, you're, I'm going to send him the hardback. You're giving me the, the unedited copy. Uh, no, but I mean, <laughs> this is a book that I think— and I guess this is your intention. I mean, it's not, it, it's a book that like, if you are an evangelical, if you, if you're trying to think, how can I talk about white privilege in a way that gets the truths out there, but is not going to sort of cause a sort of, it's like, you know this, yeah. right? Like when, when kids go to evangelical schools and they get critical thinking and it, it it's put too hard on them, one of two things happens. Like they either shipwreck their faith or they're just like, I'll just put down the answers on the test and shut down. I mean, so you're trying to kind of so what, navigate so this artfully. There's something that, that I don't see get talked about a lot, but I call it um, when we flatten things, um, when we flatten history. Um, Revolutionary War is a great example. I can ask people about the Revolutionary War and they're like, yeah, it wasn't very dramatic. Like not compared to World War Two or not World anymore because Turn just came out. I just watched Turn. My wife and I. That's why I use it as an Shimko. <laughs> not to be mercenary, <laughs> but will this uh, result in an increase in my pay? <laughs> Sim, yeah, Simco. Shimko is such a great bad guy. Oh well, so so he's a great bad guy. Yes. So we just finished the last episode that they wrapped that whole series. Oh my gosh! But what I was watching is when you get the battle scenes, you got slow velocity musket balls taking off legs, or you got starving guys in the winter camp or whatever, and you got the spy things, and you got you know people's property being seized. For the people that lived through the Revolutionary War, it was very dramatic, right? But when we look back at it, we're like, oh, it was the Revolutionary War. It wasn't that big of a deal. They didn't really fight many battles, like compared to World War. To. Now that was dramatic, right? And, and so we just take our knowledge is so simple of say something like the Revolutionary War. We just flatten it and we take all the drama out of it. That's what we've done with the racial history of of America is we flatten it. We take all the drama out of it. Like, yeah, there was slavery, and then there was a civil war, 
And then there was this long period where it didn't quite go well, but then there was the civil rights movement. Yeah, I know about our racial history. Flatten. Take all the drama out of it, all of the legacy out of it. When people get lynched, their families are destroyed and families leave the South and, and as refugees flee to the North where they're not received by communities and they're forced into to areas to live where they can't fend for them. There's a whole legacy there that affects generations and economics. And, and we take all of that out of it, out of history, right? And so what I'm trying to do in the first part of the book is go, I want you to grapple with parts of history that you don't, you've never heard or haven't really wrestled with the humanity of it. The second part of the book is, I think, in some ways the most important because the reason that I think we have Christians complicit in crazy things like racism or taking place in marches is because if you put a if you put the gospel in a box, then you're going to end up with compartmentalized Christianity. So if the gospel is just a simple formula that we package, you can have a you call a, this the salvation industrial complex. Isn't that good? This is sick. It's the best chapter title I've ever. But come what up if people with. are just like, what if the what if the sort of real like neo reform Puritan types that are sort of like not sympathetic, they go, yeah, that's right. The gospel is sick, yo. It's sick. And you don't know how sick it is. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, but the, so. It's all about acronyms. So when you've got a guy in Jim Crow that can take part in a lynching on a Friday and then on Sunday morning deliver the sermon because, because he's a deacon at the, at the church, right? Like the, the Southern Baptist denomination was started because the Baptists of the day were taking too friendly of a stance to abolition and, and ending slavery, right? Or, or being, I mean, when, when, I mean, these were Christians that did this. The Ku Klux Klan was a Protestant, anti-Catholic organization as well as anti-Black. I mean, it, so you're talking about Christians and what Christians do, did. How can they do that? It's because, because they didn't really see that race issues or justice was relevant to the gospel. And so what I've, what I've been liking to say is just simply that if you have a light in the middle of a room, even a small light, Right, it that light touches everything in the room, and so the good news, which is the light, Jesus, don't don't hide it. City on a hill can't, you know, is is going to be seen. That the light of the gospel, that good news, certainly must touch the greatest uh, historic injustice of the last five hundred years, certainly, which is racism. The gospel has to be relevant to racism, but somehow we've we've separated that off and said there's the gospel where my sins are forgiven. Period. Full stop. And then there's this issue of race, which is complicated. Those things have to touch if the good news is the good news. But don't you think, okay, so here's my theory on this. This is good. It's conspiracy theory. Yeah. So I'm sort of like a radical Lutheran some days, I think. But I actually think that, it, so, you know, there's this guy, Steve Paulson, wrote this book by Lutheran Theology. I've been, and there's other guys, Gerhard Ford. Like, you know, I read yeah. a lot of weird Lutherans. But, but sort of part of it is like the theology of glory versus theology of the cross, right? And so... As I was reading your book, I was thinking about this, like, cause Luther says that in his, I think it's the Heidelberg Disputation says, like, theology of glory, it's always like the invisible things of God and seeing what's not there and yeah. it can't deal with suffering. It's a, and it's a glory story. It's, 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 it's onward and upward. Yeah. And theology of the cross sees what's really there, including the death of God. And it doesn't make apologies mm. for that. And so it's interesting that, like, it's good. sometimes when I read, some things from my friends that run a big evangelical site. I think it's located somewhere in the north, in the dot com world. Yeah, the, the, the gospel <laughs> consortium or something. I forget what it is. 
But I feel like they do theologies about the cross, not of the cross, which really turn into glory stories or, or theology, theologies of glory. Mm-hmm. And so is the problem that like the evangelical theology is too cross-focused or it's not really a theology of the cross because, you know, Luther, Luther, I, I Luther think thinks it, like it's your morality is attacked. You're not just your, your, it's not your sins that are the biggest problem. It's the things you think are good. <laughs> and so there's the sense in which this kind of, it, it, if you're undone, right? Yeah. By by the and you talk about this the, yeah. the mercy seat and things. If you're really undone, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm sure everything from my bank to my family system to I'm sure everything is 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 filthy rags. And gosh, I, I, you know, this is you know, yeah. you become the publican. And yeah, so a couple thoughts on that. I mean, the first the, the first symbol, the dominant symbol for the early Christian church was not the cross. The cross was the Roman thing and an object of shame. So Constantine really normalized that when when he saw it in a vision and a dream in the late three hundreds or early three hundreds, and and the dream was conquer in this sign. Right? Yeah, yeah, and it and it made the cross kind of the the slowly the dominant kind of picture symbol but it was the ichthus jesus christ son of god savior so the dominant symbol originally was a relational one i think the cross rightly understood relational as well but what we can do to the cross is focus on the transaction so the cross stands in for the altar the altar is a sacrifice is made sins are washed forgiveness comes so that we can draw closer to god and the cross with the lamb of god being slain is is the altar now the altar is never the end it's always a means to the end so when we cut the cross out of of the story of what god's doing and idolize just that piece certainly the cross is a part of the gospel the good news but it's a it's a part in the sense that it's the means to the end of reconciliation sure. with God, the temple veil being rent, creation, yeah. being rent in two, yeah. So God, you know, was reconciling the world uh, to Himself through Christ, and has now given us the ministry of reconciliation. So, I think that the cross is a part of this story that shows us that we're brought back into relationship. But relationship's key, and so when we just have the cross, we have the transaction. And when you have just the transaction, you can forget everything else. You can forget justice. You can forget suffering. You can get forget whatever. When you have a relationship, you realize there has to be shalom. There has to be neighbor. There has to be love. There has to be unity. And I think the problem is, is that we've snuck the U.S. kind of uh, American dream, wrapped it in prosperity language, and that if God loves me, somehow I'm going to be blessed. Things are going to go well. And I think African-American communities, certainly churches around the world that have a relationship with suffering. I think this is what you're talking about with your Lutheran theology is that when the cross represents suffering instead of prosperity, it sets us up to a much better uh, Christian discipleship relationship where, where we're going into life by faith to do the right things, not simply to receive the benefits of religion. Yeah. And also my, my, my inner radical Lutheran wants to say that like, is it a gospel problem or a law problem in the sense of like, you know, there's the sense in which the law kills, the spirit gives light, right? So like, but the law should kill you, but it doesn't. I think most, a lot of evangelical Christians, well, I'm not, I can kind of keep the law. I mean, Jesus saved me from sin, but now I keep the law. Now I'm getting better. So there's never, like you said, you know, I did introspection, like when you first yeah. got saved, and then it led to a journey of introspection, which actually involved you writing this book and people inviting you to write it. But if, if, if that's, you're, that's an Augustinian tradition, by the way. Yeah, but if you're not killed, yeah. right? Yeah. By the, if you're not, if you, if you sort of, well, I'll take a little bit of the Jesus, but basically I'm doing all right. And I can self-medicate and do some other things that kind of get me along the way. And my righteousness is still, I mean, 
of course I need Jesus and things like that. But I mean, come on. I'm not the publican. <laughs> Maybe I'm not the Pharisee either, but I'm midway. I'm not the publican. It's, it's interesting. So, I mean, if you go back into the history, um, the social gospel kind of versus the fundamentalist movement, and I think with all those things, what we should do is is, is take the good, leave the bad, yeah. right? So nothing's ever 100% zero. What about just take the bad, leave the good? It wouldn't be a good strategy over well, time. It seems like it's, it, it, somebody <laughs> going to like the present. <laughs> Some, well, there you go. <laughs> so, so back in 1907. No, so the, the fundamentals, 90 essays, 12 volumes written between 1910, 1915. I I could have gotten them for twenty dollars. I could reprint a really nice set. It would have been. Would have been. Buy you should have. It would have been a historical artifact. But it was. It was meant to to ground conservative theology. But if you go read the ninety essays, so just just pull it up on Wikipedia. Just read the title of ninety essays. Ninety of them, right? You never once see the word love. Never once see the word justice. Never once see the word neighbor. Never once see the word poor, which is crazy because when Paul says, I've got this new way of talking about the gospel, sends it to the Jerusalem council to evaluate. They say, hey, we'll, we'll baptize this new way of talking about the gospel. But the one thing we ask is that you remember the poor. The word poor is not mentioned. I mean, you can go on and on, but there was 90 essays and they never hit at any of the heart of the gospel with regard to love, the other uh, the the orphan, the widow, the alien, the poor. I mean, it's just fascinating. And so you wonder, where did we come from, historically situated, where we have such a lack of concern for the other? And I'm saying you can trace it back and say, yeah. it's not just the things we say, it's what we omit that shapes us too. But don't you think also most evangelicals too is, are just like Americans? Well, American <laughs> evangelicals are Americans? Or, I mean, Americans in the, I mean, in the sense of, you know, I, I asked uh, Robert Jeffries, who runs PRI, like, I had all these grand theories of why evangelicals support Trump. He's like, well, I've studied all the data again and again. He's like, it's just because they're partisan Republicans. Like, B Trump got more of the evangelical vote than George W. Bush. And he was more offensive racially. He's more offensive. So on, on some level, oh, five minutes. All right. We're, we got the five minute. We're here, by the way, in the American Bible Society offices oh, in yeah. Philadelphia. And we can see Independence Hall and all these great things. But so we got to wrap it up. So I want to ask you, we got where we just have to go to the, you know, we have to where it's this fourth day, fourth quarter. We got to put it through the uprights. So it needs an emoji. Where do you think is the place that privilege is most unconverted in your life? Where you're like, I'm, just, I'm not letting go of it. Here's the thing. This is, this is really hard, but this is the struggle I have. In my life, yeah, I, I think this is a daily conversation for me. Um, we have such a, a will to succeed. Um, and, and I think... And you're a pretty successful guy. I mean, you start conferences, you start a, a college, you, you're a pastor, you're a persuasive and gifted communicator. Yeah. And there's this confidence that you get. I mean, there's a t-shirt. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but um, I've several friends of color that wear it and it's, it's pretty funny, but it says, if I only had the confidence of a mediocre white guy, you know, like, yeah, I, I, I did grow up thinking I could walk into any conversation and just assert myself even if I was an idiot on it and, I, and I'm around people that have PhDs. Like I, I had that kind of radical confidence, self-assertiveness, self-confidence, whatever you want to call it. Like I, I have it. Right. And so it's, it's contrary to my nature to say, I have to keep trying to keep that in check and be willing to listen and to learn from leaders of color 
to let them mentor me into areas that, that I don't know as well as they know. And that sometimes my actions need to be about letting others succeed than to, than to, to, to be about promoting myself. So this book, one of the first things I had to do was, was clear it with, with people in my life and to sign over the royalties so that they didn't go to me. It would have been really weird if it was a New York Times bestseller. My church was going, by the way, I lost 20% of my church. Took, over this took, book? Oh yeah. Took a pay cut. But really, but, what twenty percent of over this book over the topic? Yeah, I mean, it's not your your church isn't like pretty not, right wing, right? Your church is pretty. You're in but the think, Pacific Northwest. Think of, think of your average white evangelical church. The pastor can write a book on prayer, on marriage, on raising kids, on spiritual growth. It's not what you're going to write a book on marriage and spiritual growth to get them back. Maybe get them back yeah, just to make my life easier. But, but you don't think of your, your local evangelical pastor writing a book on white privilege and it, and people don't want to be uncomfortable or be challenged. We've, we've made it to like this, that, that, that chaplain you were talking about at the Christian university, we've made it to where it's all about keeping it comfortable. But so in, in this whole space, I'm realizing like, it's, it's, I'm doing this not to, to become, I'm doing this because truth matters. These people, my friends, matter. If I can play a part, I'll do it, even even if it's a sacrificial part. So the book wasn't about yeah, being successful, right? That would have been really weird. Write a book on white privilege and and feel really successful about it, right? But it's it's been a, a challenging thing. So I think what am I dealing with with, with white, white privilege is, is just an ongoing continual awareness that it is real, that it's subtle, it's deeper than even I write about. And that sometimes the biggest part about privilege is we get tired and want to choose our way out of this conversation, which only demonstrates the fact that it's a privilege. My friends of color don't get to stop thinking about race or having yeah, to talk about yeah. it or or being profiled. Like the fact that I can take a day off only confirms the fact that, man, there's this thing and it's deep and it's pernicious and it's called privilege. Ken, people should read the book and buy it. And it's been great getting to know you. Thanks for digging out my past and the Smashing Pumpkins and everything else, yeah. man. It's been if great. you can't smash pumpkins, what are they good for? <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. And please do check out Ken's book, The Myth of Equality. It's a great read on a timely topic. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, fare thee well.